0: I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World Is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Paul Williams, the director, not the songwriter, or the rock critic, or the architect. The other Paul Williams. In this, our fourth season of the World Is Wrong podcast, we're doing something a little different. I'm your host Andras Jones, and Paul—Paul Williams, that is—has graciously agreed to join us to share excerpts and outtakes from his memoir, Harvard, Hollywood, Hit Men and Holy Men, currently available as part of the Screen Classics Collection from the University Press of Kentucky. Williams is the director of The November Men, which World is Wrong listeners will already be familiar with, as well as films like Out of It from 1969 and The Revolutionary from 1970, both starring a young John Voight. Williams, with his Pressman Williams production partner, Edward Pressman, was a producer of films like Brian De Palma's Sisters and The Phantom of the Paradise, as well as Terrence Malick's Badlands. Beyond the movies, Paul rode many of the movements of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, both political and cultural, with characters as varied as John Voight, Julia Phillips, Eric Erickson, and most of the important directors associated with New Hollywood. If you're interested in the story of New Hollywood, Paul's memoir fills in some major gaps. And if you're too lazy and or cheap to get the book and read it, well, this podcast will give you a taste of what you're missing. In today's episode of the podcast, Paul reads a selection about his relationship with Margot Kidder and the gang of film artists who were a part of their scene. There are a few sections of this where the sound quality dips below what I consider ideal, so I've done my best to clean it up. I hope you enjoy it.
1: 24 hours later, I fly to LAX designed by yet another Paul Williams, the first black architect west of the Mississippi, who perfected his ability to render his plans upside down. So sitting across the table from his bigoted clients who did not want to sit next to him in the 1920s, could see what he had in mind right side up. I check into the Chateau Marmont, rent a car, and drive for an hour up the coast to Malibu to Jennifer Salt's house on Nicholas Beach. John and Jennifer split up many months ago. I admire Jennifer. I knock. A gorgeous woman with lovely eyes, who is not Jennifer, opens the door. My heart commences to palpitate wildly. I take her hand and press it on my freakishly pounding chest. I say, do you feel it? She says, yeah. I say, gee whiz, this has never happened to me before and I think I'm going to die right here, a heart attack. My God, maybe we should take a walk. She looks at me wide-eyed and says, okay, sure. We walk down to the beach. The MDA is still manifestly in my system. She says, are you feeling better? I say, my heart is racing, but I am alive, thanks. She sits with me on the sand looking out at the Pacific. We talk honestly of our experience and feelings about love, divorce, drugs, acting, revolution, and consciousness. Happily, as the sun sets, we are enough of one mind that we come to the certain conclusion that we should live together. She is Jennifer's roommate, Margot Kidder, later Superman Christopher Reeves' girlfriend, Lois Lane. Margot has a chronic breathing problem. After a couple of days, I tell her to stop wearing the tight, broad belts she cinches to accent her hourglass shape. Her condition is cured. We are in the full breath of love. I am just in the first days of my brave new world. I fly to Cannes for the festival and have lunch with Jack Nicholson on the Quazette. He is there with his first directorial effort drive, he said, with Karen Black and Bill Tepper, among others. I say, I like moments when a character appears foolish, when he breaks the expected pattern, he allows the cracks of his personality to show. It makes fresh how going as utterly competent is really a defensive act. He is vulnerable. In his next film, Bob Rafelson is the King of Marvin Gardens, there's a shot where Suave Jack jumps in his car and speeds away. I see him again at a friend's house. He says, Did you see my coat? It sticks out the door after I close it. That was for you. I say, I did, and I liked it. Yes, that was good. He says, but, Paul, really, you should never step on your own dick. I'm not so sure. What's the big deal? I leave for Manhattan to meet with Ed, and I'm eager to see my peyote buddies again, Barbara and David. They ask me if they should do Boxcar Bertha with a young director named Martin Scorsese. A Boy Scout is helpful. I tell them not to miss the chance, even though it's a low-brow, low-budget production of Roger Corman. Marty's next film, after that, is Mean Streets. <laughs> In Ed's apartment on 34th Street, Marty and Brian sit down with Ed and me to discuss Brian's new idea. De Palma says, look, I'll keep ripping off Hitchcock. Marty can do his street movies, and Paul can do his sensitive films. We do it together as a new United artist." He's going the wrong way for me. I don't like the idea of being even more of a product. I have difficulty with people every day. I feel pinned when they speak to some formulated idea of me. I observe them from a spot next to me. I do not like the business of movies. I am uncomfortable with this plan to become more productive, more famous, a lifelong brand. I am still not who I am. In this ruthless system, who am I? A detached entity with a public identity? The Boy Wonder, publicized recently in articles about Paul Williams and Life, Playboy, and Time. I say, it's too much work. Movies are some kind of never-ending cycle, a trap of some kind. My new work is to get rid of this work that prevents me from doing my real work. Whatever that may be. I know who I am not. Back in Margot's and Jennifer's living room on a weekend, weed, coke, and music, as usual, and the gangs all there, Susan Sarandon, Jill Clayberg, Janet Margolin, Blythe Danner, and Brian Marty, and his actor buddies Bob De Niro and Harvey Keitel. Steven Spielberg, doing TV at Universal during the week and infatuated with Margot, has yet to direct his first theatrical feature. And John Milius, who emerges for a day from his little room in Santa Monica, where he is writing three screenplays at one time, with the plan to present them as a slate to some studio to get a chance to direct. New albums play, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, James Taylor's Sweet Baby James, and Blue from Joni Mitchell, whom I unobtrusively observe many mornings at the Colony Coffee Shop. I sit on a mattress with Lorne Michaels. The brilliant criminal Richard Nixon is now president. Lorne says, I'm doing a really new comedy show for TV. Our reality, our generation, not theirs. Would you like to work with me on it? I say, Are you going to make jokes that will threaten the power of the oligarchy? Are you willing to reveal what's going on with the military industrial complex? Do you have any idea how much power is exercised by the ultra rich? He says, No, not that far. It's network. I say, Well, that's not what I want to do with my life. What's the point? Lauren's Saturday Night Live begins without me. Most Americans remain like the prisoners in Preston Sturge's Sullivan's travels, who surpass their everyday preoccupations only at night when they laugh at Mickey Mouse on film. I am confident SNL is a distraction business. Producer Julia Phillips and her husband Michael live next door to Margot and me. She says is too much trouble. Would you direct Taxi Driver? I read the script she gives me. I say, I don't think I could put my head around so much violence and so much degeneration for a whole year. Stick with Marty. He knows how to direct. After that, Julia shows me the final cut of The Sting. She is worried it will be a flop. I say, it's great. I'll buy any share of it you want to sell. I don't have much money, but she is reassured. No sale. Julia is the first woman to win an Academy Award for Best Picture, The Sting. She dies early from a long and monumental indulgence in cocaine, after producing Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, while in the midst of writing Power Dykes of Hollywood, a sequel to her successful You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again, in which I get her only kind words. I relieve her head pain one day with my laying on of the hands. No charge. During the week, Margo stars in a TV series with James Garner, Nichols, at Warner Brothers. I cut dealing on the lot. During breaks, we rendezvous in her tiny dressing room. We can only barely lie down on the floor on the diagonal. Mike Meadowboy, her agent, says, Margo says you're the one. She's serious. Ed has expropriated all my directing salary for Preston Williams expenses, but I have a huge weekly expense account from Warner Brothers which I don't get unless I turn in receipts each week. So often during the week, Margo, Jennifer, and I meet up with friends and have expensive dinners at the wear in and other posh eateries. I'm happy to pay for the dinners. Hungry? Eat. A real need is one that can be satisfied, after all. I have in mind a plan to form a commune with the regulars. But long before that happens, everybody gets successful and goes off to burrow into their individual careers. Another delusion but this barren effort lets a little more light into my soul. I don't want to compete. This child needs to cooperate. I drift in a different direction. A local female Native American shaman has made a wood frame cradle. I am on my hands and knees with just my middle supported by the cradle's strong leather straps. I follow her instructions. I exhale fully. She pushes down sharply and powerfully at the bottom of my spinal column. An electrical charge undulates up my backbone, and I spin out the top of my head and tumble into starry black emptiness. I have no idea whatsoever of who I am. I am bewildered. I think, I am not here, but I am here. This is someplace between what is me and what is not me. Profound confusion as I spin in the dark, blown apart, surrounded by the distant breathing stars. This is what it feels like not to have a self. Out of thin air, I think, Who is seeing this? Not I that believes, I think, therefore I am. Usually my intellect watches me, the watched. Now there is a watcher of the watcher of the watched. Awareness of awareness of being aware? I expanded to something larger than I previously thought myself to be. Deeper understandings are coming one step after another. I am, therefore I think. I am, therefore I think. I am, therefore I think. Waldo Salt calls me. I've been asked to do a screenplay of Carlos Castaneda's Brujo, Don Juan. I'm at the Chelsea Hotel. Waldo knows about my peyote days from his daughter, Debbie. I am in midtown Manhattan, and I head right down to 23rd Street. The fabled hotel has large rooms, high ceilings, old area rugs, and second-hand furniture. I say, this is wonderful timing for me, but the special effects will cost more than 2001 he says. It's not that big a movie. I tell Waldo about going with James Taylor to Hawaii for a concert he was going to give with Carly Simon. James and I took some MDA, he used it like aspirin, in his 10th floor hotel room. At the living room table, he showed me the old cigarette burns on the back of his hands. He tells me that's his way of communicating to fools that their blava was causing him pain. Then the MDA started coming on strong and I walked out on the balcony. I felt this could well be the moment to jump. I will ride the colorful band down to the ground, just like Castaneda in Journey to Ixland, into the Grand Canyon, and then ride it back up to rejoin my body. It is the ultimate step in the way of the brujo. To Waldo, I say, before I make the jump, a voice came to me. Remember, you are on a drug. I retreated from the balcony and sat in the farthest removed corner of James' hotel room until the grandfather pendulum came to rest hours later. I say to Waldo, in any event, this Castaneda project will be expensive. Warren Beatty, who is canny about Hollywood, said to me, I'd trust you with maybe two million. That's not enough. They won't let me direct. I don't want the job. It's difficult being a spiritual man in the material world. I want to have fun. Later in the year, James laid down on a brief track. Mescalito has opened up my eyes. Ah, Mescalito has set my mind at ease ah margot and brian restart their careers in an independent production of De palma's wild knockoff of alfred hitchcock's sisters that i shepherd to ed of pressman williams i keep my distance from the production a song from the Lovin' spoonful's new album do you believe in magic is on my mind there's one with big blue eyes cute as a buddy with hair down to here and plenty of money And just when you think she's the one in the world, your heart gets stolen by some mousy little girl. Did you ever have to make up your mind? Jennifer Salt, Margot's roommate, has a teenage sister, Debbie. She's a strong painter and works on canvases bigger than she is. Debbie is bright as the sun, has a huge red afro, and is full of persistent, passionate energy. We drive to Santa Fe and sit on top of a mesa. We eat magic psilocybin mushrooms. Consciousness expands to the sky and curving horizon. Nothing from the past reaches this present. I am united with the universe with no distinction between my personality and the rest of nature. Finally, we float in the rosy clouds reflecting the setting sun. Unity and bliss, we are going the right way. On the way back in the twilight, we see a young male Latino hitchhiker. Debbie says, poor guy. I say, let's give him a ride. He gets in the back seat and pulls out a revolver. He says, take out your wallet. I say, are you hungry? He says, yes. I say, well, why don't we go have a nice dinner before you rob us? Don't worry, we'll give you everything we have. At the restaurant, he keeps a hand on his weapon under his jacket and eats with the other hand. By the end of dinner, he trusts us to give him our money and to drive him home in a small group of small... And and to drive him to his home in a small and to drive him to his home in a group of small cinder block houses miles off road in the desert. It's pitch black scary, but we finally arrive alive at his house in the middle of nowhere. I empty my wallet. God's only money is God. God? In ethics, Baruch Spinoza said that God and nature are the same. He gets out and does not shoot us. He keeps his word. We keep ours. There is light, even in the darkness. I am 27 years old. Debbie is 18 years old. Debbie and I are together in my little house for six months. I have never met a woman with more enthusiasm and energy for sex. I try to keep up with Debbie, but the effort finally makes me feel like I will die soon. The relationship comes to its broken end. Now Waldo does not speak to me. I hurt his youngest daughter. (sighs) Decades later, Debbie forgives me. Her father is long gone. She says, I was on meth constantly, staying thin. It was a life and death choice for me. 1971. Barbara Clark dances at a party at Margot's with fluid grace and confidence. She shoots me a sultry, penetrating, power dyke vamp stare. I am smitten. We chat. I say, you move so beautifully, she says. Are you gay? She speaks as clearly as my father demanded, with an English accent. She is perfumed with patchouli. Barbara just completed a two-month road trip across the country with the Czech director, Milos Borman. the later director of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Amadeus. She has a quick sense of humor. I am going to New York the next day and she asks if she can stay in my beach house while I'm gone. She seems free as a bird. I say okay. When I get back, my small living room is filled by the low afternoon sun and a sculpture made of discarded television antenna with warmly illuminated shells and shards of purple and red glass from the beach that hang from strings tied to the horizontal aluminum rods. I also find a note. Coming across the country with Milos and going through Navajo country, I noticed pieces of brightly colored cloth, usually red, tied to the fences, and when I inquired about them, was told they were offerings to the gods, and that every time a piece of shell or material was blown away, the sea gods were accepting the offering. Also, the note invites me to see her in New York the next time I come there. I still go to New York because Ed still lives there. United Artists, MGM, and Columbia still have headquarters in Manhattan. The other studios are now in Los Angeles. Bob and I stay together at her East 57th Street fourth floor walk-up. We have an easy rapport and detachment from the norms of society. Her surrender and her sexual skills are so beyond my prior experience, or Frank Harris's, let alone my adolescent dreams, that I am ecstatically imprisoned. She is an aristocrat of love, worth melting for. While she is out one day, I find a New York City Police Department mugshot of her, full face and profile, cool and criminal. I fall in love with the astonishing way from the two images. A reaction formation to Elizabeth? Barbara is unfettered by society and familiar with altered states. She is my new brave dream. The mugshot was the result of a brief arrest after receiving some hashish mailed by a friend in Amsterdam. Clearly, life can be beautiful. 1972. I watched the final cut of Dealing in a Warner Brothers screening room in Burbank. As I feared for a year, there is little chemistry between Harvard man John Lithgow, 65, and Robert F. Lyons. You can always tell a Harvard man, unfortunately. This style is too European in its pace and sensitivities, and will not work for pixelated Americans. It is an American failure. I drive northbound in my van along Pacific Coast Highway. Electrical energy buzzes and shocks throughout my body. I must pull off the road and park on the shoulder. I am paralyzed with nervous electrical overload. Then I actually see in front of me a vision of the construction of my entire life from childhood to now. My choices, my efforts, my works. Each step is an interlocking small strut in an assembly of hundreds that create a geodesic cave where the windshield used to be. Decades of accumulated adjustments constructed strut to strut to avoid the wrath of my parents as I try to fulfill their conflicting conscious and unconscious desires. Then the synapses between these struts spark and break apart and fall like toothpicks. The electric plug is pulled out of the socket. The shorting is over. I am burned out. All is still. It is quiet. It is serene. It is now afterwards. I am upside down. The story is now up for grabs, not knowing it is magic. The movie will have its first public exposure in a huge theater in Boston. I am in the bathtub of my suite high in the Hilton Hotel, high on LSD when I hear a knock. Naked, I open the door and look into the eyes of a tall, buff, black man, and then look down at a white dwarf. I recognize the composer of the current ubiquitous hit of The Carpenters, We've Only Just Begun. I invite him and his bodyguard into the suite, and we josh about publicity and write our numbers in each other's phone books, the other Paul Williams. Another one. When they leave, I get back in the tub. Vestiges of my old life are living me. (laughs) Later, I am at the opening with the cast, sitting in the packed audience, when reel seven appears on the screen after reel three. The film makes no sense. Joy Bang, nay, Joy Winner, who married Paul Bang, jumps up from her seat and says, No, no, they put the reels out of order. It makes no sense. This is not the movie we made. Ask for your money back. The entire... Cash joins with her, trying to alert the crowd with frantic shouts. I stand, but haven't the energy for an absurd shout. The lights go on, but the film continues to run in a nonsensical narrative. The lights soon go dim, and the film unreels to its ending, with no one in the audience leaving. Man composes, God disposes. I find out the next day that the anti-hippie IATSE union projectionists deliberately sabotaged the counterculture pot film. A reality sandwich. Later at a press luncheon for the stars and me, David Carradine overtly slips a tab of acid into my coffee. I sit in a comfortable chair on the set of WGBH TV in Boston while Elia Kazan, on the waterfront, and Melvin Van Peebles, watermelon man, with moderator Carl Stokes, the first black elected mayor of Cleveland in the nation. Kazan and Van Peebles argue contentiously about the comparative merits of their films. I am quiet. Stokes says, Paul Williams, I would like to hear from you. What are your feelings about the influence of film on our current politics? I say, I don't see why we are arguing with each other. We're just selling movies here. And the only reason we're on the TV show here is to sell dog food at the commercial break. This is about making money, that's all. The crew laughs in the dark. An hour later, I'm on the radio. The interviewer says, you aren't yet 30 and have made three Hollywood films. What advice do you have to give to all the young filmmakers out there who are listening? I say, if you're serious about directing, and you don't know anybody in show business, like I didn't, you ought to be speeding right now in a taxi with a copy of your script. You want to be ahead of everybody else to stop and accost me when I leave the studio. I learned that an unruly mob showed up demanding to meet me. I was
0: gone. Dear Listener, If you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show.
1: Eight notes scale an octave. Master the scale and you master the score.
0: Wow, Paul, that was a uh, that was a serious gang you ran with back in Hollywood in the was this the early 70s? This is like 70, 71, 72? Right. And there's a lot of illustrious names you talk about in this, but there's one who's I think of as illustrious, but I think that probably modern listeners will be less familiar with the name Waldo Salt then names like Scorsese, Ah. De Palma, Spielberg, and Milius. Can you talk a little bit about who Waldo Salt was and your relationship with him beyond what you talked about in the the reading?
1: Well, Waldo is regarded as one of the best screenwriters of the 20th century. In fact, the Writers Guild Award for Best Screenplay is called uh, the Waldo Salt Award. Uh, he wrote Midnight Cowboy. I think he wrote Coming Home. He wrote a bunch of films in the 40s and 50s. Um, and uh, he wrote a wonderful, wonderful uh, screenplay about Don Quixote that was never made. <laughs> it was great. But Waldo was, a, was you know, acknowledged as the, pretty much the best screenwriter in town. or You know, he and Goldman um so what can we say about waldo that uh, he had a, two daughters uh, uh debbie and the older daughter uh jennifer jennifer salt who uh was john voigt's girlfriend and she and john saw her in the uh in the revolutionary she plays the female lead and uh when I subsequently went out to California after the Revolutionary, after being in Algeria and you know shooting, dealing, which is really just to get away from the FBI and the CIA and get out of town, I ended up in LA and I went to see Jennifer, Jennifer Salt, who is Walder's daughter and I knocked on the door, and of course, that's in the book, I met Margot Kidder, who was the roommate of Jennifer Salt, And it's a, it's a wonderful story of how we got together, but we pretty much decided to live together right then and there. And uh, so uh, that was how I, you know, so I sort of knew Jennifer. Uh, and actually, even while we were writing the Revolutionary, now that I think about it, Oh, I write about this in the book, too. Waldo offered to do a rewrite on the Revolutionary. And I think due to my own neurosis with my father, who made me rewrite my essays all the time when I was a kid, I stupidly did not take Waldo up on his offer. And God knows he would have improved the screenplay tremendously. And he won the the Oscar for Best Screenplay right after that for... uh, uh what was it midnight cowboy remember. it might have, no no it was after coming home oh yeah so i knew waldo in new york and uh and oh at one point he was gonna write a a screenplay about don juan uh the Brewhole in carlos castaneda's books and he knew that i had had these experiences with peyote with David Carradine and Barbara Hershey and I, I guess he knew all about them and so he asked me to help him write that screenplay and uh, direct the movie but uh, I told him it would be more expensive than 2001 to do all the special effects this is way before CGI this is you know so the effects were just prohibitively expensive and I tell the story in the book. Uh, Warren Beatty tells me one time that at that point in my career, he trusted me with maybe $2 million. And this film would cost far more than $2 million. So I had to tell Waldo, they'd never let me do it. But I still stayed friendly with him. We used to go have uh, sushi when there was only, can you believe it, one sushi restaurant in Los Angeles in 1970. Where was that? Uh, yeah, the Imperial Gardens on Sunset. And uh, we used to go there all the time, uh, you know, once a week. And he had the best weed in town, Waldo. (laughs) And uh, so we'd have dinner once a week. It was great. But there's more to it than that. And that's all detailed in the book. Right. Not only that, but, you know, Waldo always used to say about writing a screenplay, that before you write a screenplay, you should write a book about all the characters that are going to be in your screenplay. And you should know everything about them, what they put in their, uh, in their closet and their drawers, what they do, you know, know everything about them, each character and write it down. It might take you a year or so. And then once you've done that or two years, it took him sometimes, then the real trick when you're writing the screenplay is just to pick the right location for the scene that you're about to write and put the characters in that location and they should speak to you by that point. So I thought that was a kind of a genius understanding of the process. And to some extent, I think the memoir is a little bit like that. It's like my writing my backstory so that I can be fully present in my own scene day by day as my life goes on. In other words, the memoir is not to celebrate my ego. The memoir is to get uh, to get rid of uh, my holding on to all kinds of
0: character. I can see that. Yeah. Writing it allows you to let go of it. Yeah. So, Paul, this is the only time in this podcast that I'm going to do it. And I think it's because uh, this episode just sort of screams for it. You you mentioned some uh, pretty impressive characters who came through your uh, your gang, your scene at that time, and I'm sure listeners are curious about them. It's not the most interesting part of your story, but let's just get it out of the way. There's four big names who who roll through the apartment and the restaurant and the crowd that you were hanging with, and I was wondering if you could uh, you could just tell us, a, you'd fill in a few of the blanks. I know a, a lot of this you write out in the book, but mostly in the book. You mostly are talking about your adventures, and these people sort of wander through your lives. But let's start with Brian De Palma. Clearly, he was a big part of, you were a big part of his career in that you produced Sisters and Phantom of the Paradise with your partner, Ed Pressman. You introduced him to Margot Kidder, who starred in Sisters. It's just- uh, I did not
1: I, I did not introduce him to Margot. Oh, Margo. okay. He knew Margot.
0: Got it. I was living with Margo
1: at the time uh, that his film, Get to Know Your Rabbit, went into the toilet. And he and Margo were sort of down on their luck, wondering what they were going to do. And that's when we figured out to put Margo in Sisters and have Marian would direct it and we would produce it. But he knew Margo already. He knew Jennifer too. And and a bunch of those girls who were at, uh, that uh, Sarah Lawrence, she taught at Sarah Lawrence in New York where all of them were
0: undergraduates, uh, Jennifer Salt and various other people. Who, can you remember who any of those various others were? Margot uh, was one of them? I'm trying to
1: remember who was, no, Margot was not, a, she came from, Margot was from Yellowknife, Canada. Uh, she was a Vogue model first and then became an actress. Who else is it Jennifer? Oh, uh, that girl who was in one, uh, the, the Frank Perry movie, uh, David and Lisa Janet Margolin. Uh, she was another one, it's Sarah Lawrence. But you know, I, I don't know what you there are lots of stories about Brian in the book, and you know, Brian is a, a funny guy, and he had a great sense of humor, and uh. You know, he's another one of these movie, movie, you know, he he was definitely obsessed by movies and loved movies. And he was like Marty that way. A lot of these guys really loved movies and they wanted to make movies and they knew who they wanted to be. And they wanted to be, you know, famous movie directors and make great movies. But they didn't really want to, you know, uh, there was no larger cultural importance to most anything they were doing. They wanted to make good movies. And they weren't great students of the culture. They would be happy to make distracting, uh, you know. They were were not caught up in the times of the radical
0: times. They were
1: clear uh,
0: careerists. As opposed to you, you were clear. When you say this, it sounds like you're saying that although you made movies, the movies weren't what you were obsessed with. You were obsessed with life and the well, things that I, were going on, and you were making movies.
1: Brian, Brian and Marty and Francis, they knew it. They were like movie scholars. They, they were immersed in the movie history and had seen everything, and they, you know, they were going about their business. Um, I, I was a still photographer. I was very interested in psychology perception. Uh, I was very interested in how people perceived things. Uh, And I was very interested in politically, how the country was being uh, demolished by the oligarchs and the uh, military industrial complex. I mean, everything today where we all walk around saying, oh, there's so much inequality and uh, everything's run by money. And that's the result of 45 years worth of, of process that uh you know systematically was uh, uh created after uh, Eisenhower left uh, office and uh, slowly but surely the progressive income tax was rolled back and the rich got richer and the middle class taxes went up and uh, you got a, a celebration of celebrity people you know things that computers can't do get highly rewarded like putting a ball through a basket or acting in a movie or, you know, basically individuals get highly rewarded by the society if they can do things that uh, machines cannot do. But anyway, the point of it all was that it was very clear to a whole lot of people that the country was, you know, becoming, uh, you know, in its own way an oligarchic authoritarian sham of a democracy, where most people, you know, most of the real power resides in the wealthy centers and uh, corporations and individuals, and they hire the, you know, the politicians to administer the world they'd like to see. I mean, they've done studies, 80% of all the laws passed by the Congress. Uh, are a matter of absolute indifference to most of the population. There's very little legislation that goes through to help people. Most of it has to do with the arbitration of business and profit and uh, you know, squeezing the middle class and the poor and enriching a small group of corporations and people who then run the show. Now that's been clear for you know decades and decades. But the people who ran around talking about those things, like the Panthers ended up dead, Huey ended up, uh, oh well, you know, the the Weathermen, the uh, all the radicals, basically everybody got eliminated. even, you know, and on some certain level, they certainly killed John Kennedy and uh, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. I mean, after that, I think they got people pretty unconsciously Uh, scared. I mean, nobody, nobody, there's no left left after that. Clinton became, uh, you know, a Republican and the Republicans became far right. like Goldwater. It's like you had no, there was no left left. And most of my movie making friends couldn't care less. They didn't make the system. It's not their fault. They want to have a, they want to make movies and they did. And they, and, and a lot of them were wonderful. Uh, movie makers Uh, but they uh, celebrated things that were uh, ultimately uh, either degenerative or distractions anyway that's my rant
0: well if that's what we get when I ask you about uh, Brian De Palma I can't wait to hear (laughs) what you have to say when I bring up John Milius
1: (laughs) well Milius was was very smart fella And but you got to remember, oh, we were all very young and everybody wanted to be a director. Now i strangely enough, as a director, I had a, you know, it was Marty and Francis and I were directors already, mainly because we started directing little films or Francis wrote uh, big films, but, you know, I was a director when I was 17, they were just very little films. (laughs) It's just that the films got bigger and bigger. I was always the director. But there were a lot of people in on the West Coast, not who didn't come from the East Coast, who wanted to break into the business, and it was very hard to do as a director. And uh, Milius is quite smart. He just holed up in his little apartment in Santa Monica, and he wrote three screenplays. And he didn't show them to anybody until he had them all done. He said, And he was very clear about it. He said, when they're all done, I'm going to the studio. And If that they're good, they're going to want to make them. Well, the only way they can get to make them is if they hire me to do the first one. And then I'll be a director. And that's exactly what he did.
0: So the was the first one Big Wednesday.
1: Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yes. But he had written three others by that time. He had written three others. And it's not like he did Wednesday and then another one, you know, there was. He'd already written his first three movies. That's how he got the job.
0: Do you remember what the other two in that slate were?
1: I don't remember their names. I think there was one having to do with India and, uh, uh, yeah, some kind of British uh, colonial thing. Uh,
0: but I don't remember offhand now.
1: But it's fairly simple. Just look up his filmography. See what his first three films are.
0: So, like, Apocalypse wasn't a part of that um, Red Dawn. That was later. And then we're going to be getting into it more in next week's episode when we talk about Out of It. But the other major player, not at the time, just a TV director at the time, who rolled through that scene was Steven Spielberg. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And... Obviously, you talk a lot about him in that section of the book, but my understanding is that because you were a director who was already making films at this time and the studios knew you as that young guy from the new generation making films, that a lot of these up-and-coming directors like Spielberg were sent to you to be like, hey, talk to Paul. He's the... He knows what's going on you're both you're both young talk about movies is that uh well, is that in any way accurate well yes it is accurate but in a small way the
1: big thing that got everybody together was margot kidder If you and uh, if you want to know the truth margot you know at her her house i didn't know this I, it was the first place i went to when i went to la i went to the chateau marmont rented a car and went out to see jennifer I didn't realize that Margot and Jennifer's house was kind of the center for all that was going on. Everybody would come out there on the weekends. Spielberg, uh, De Niro, Keitel, uh, Milius, uh, De Palma, uh, sometimes Scorsese, uh, you know, it was Margot. Who, I mean, Spielberg was had a crush on Margot.
0: We all had a crush on Margot. Uh,
1: anyway, but I didn't know who Margot was when, you know, we started living together. I found out that seems to be this pattern in my life. I end up with these women, then I find out later who they are. Yeah, but I mean, the, the small way what you said was true is that when I was working at Universal, uh, Sid Sheinberg did ask me to talk to Spielberg and Michael Crichton. Uh, to, before they did their first movies for Universal, to give them some help. And I did. I met with them. But I, I, you know, they, obviously, they both were very, very smart, talented people. And they, I could tell, were not particularly interested in being sent to have lunch with me, who was, uh, you know, I was frightened I knew from the Crimson, because we were both on the Harvard Crimson together. and. Uh, Spielberg I knew from hanging out at Margot's. We used to see each other every weekend. So when Scheinberg, that, that was really tangential. It wasn't the central thrust of our relationship. And I remember saying to them both, I said, look, you don't want to talk to me. I know you don't want to talk to me. Let me just tell you one thing I wish I had known before I directed my first movie. And that is to, on every setup." Make sure you have a clean frame and let the actor move into the frame. And at the end of the scene, even if there's no motivation for it, just have them enter the frame. And then at the end of the scene, have them leave the frame, even if there's no reason for that either. So you have a clean entrance and a clean exit for all the people who speak in the scene. Because as when you get in the cutting room, certain scenes, you want to be shorter and certain scenes you want to be longer. You want to adjust the rhythm of scenes so they really swing. Well, that's very hard to do uh, after you shoot. If you want it to be really smooth, you need a, a smooth way in and a smooth way out that doesn't look like you're chopping up your movie. And so if you have somebody enter the frame who's not talking, you then can cut to anybody in the scene who's talking who you want to start the scene. And similarly, at the end of the scene, if... You're done. You don't want to hear anybody else talk. You can cut to the person leaving the this, this frame. And that gives you an entrance and an exit anywhere in the scene you want. Which, in your early movies, you may not get quite right. And it's nice to have that emergency exit. Anyway, Spielberg really appreciated it. I don't know how much Crichton did. But that was, that was our
0: big lunch, as I remember it. And it was the two, it was the three of you. Yeah, got it, got it. And this was before or after you worked with Michael Crichton and his brother on Dealing. Uh
1: this was after.
0: Because uh, yeah, this was
1: they were still he hadn't directed yet. Michael Crichton. In fact, I was at the executive dining room at Universal. And they were just starting. It working at Universal. And that's why Scheinberg called me.
0: Heady times. Heady times. So the the only other thing here that I wanted to just give you an opportunity to talk about is one of the things that you discuss in this film is your, uh, I don't know, your love life, let's just say. Your relationship with Margot Kidder and then your relationship with uh the younger, the sis the younger sister of Jennifer Salt, I forget her name, Deb Debbie? Is that what you said? Is that her name in the book? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, and it's something that we're gonna get into later. You I mean, you talk about hanging out with Warren Beatty, and when I read your book, there are aspects of Beattiness to your love life. You end up with some very notable screen presences who are who you talk about your love affairs with and certainly at the this was a this was a this was a time when people were experimenting and it's just it's the the freedom and the 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 free love aspect of that time comes through in your book and it seems like if we're going to talk about the pillars of Paul Williams' life. One of them is Paul Williams, the activist. One of them is Paul Williams, the artist. One of them is Paul Williams, the spiritual explorer. And one of them is definitely Paul Williams, the lover, as a character in your book. Is that anything you feel comfortable talking about at all?
1: Well, I see. I wouldn't characterize it that way. I mean, it wasn't like... uh... Uh, I don't want to say, I mean, there are certain people who are quite compulsive about their sexuality. And that was not me. Uh, Although some of the people you mentioned, you know, who were quite compulsive, they were just into notching, you know, their belt with conquests. That was not me. I mean, I was, I think, a serial monogamist. Uh, I mean, I, I love being in love, and uh, I was not just... Uh, so, yeah, it was a series of of women that I was involved with, but uh, they were, as the book points out, they all uh, have to do with relationship and intimacy. They weren't treated as objects. Um, but it was a lot of fun back then because... Uh, you know, it was before AIDS, it was before all this, all of that stuff. And and the society itself was breaking down a little bit, which was great. Uh, you know, I really believe that the society now that we're living in is full of delusions and uh, is suicidal and not very clear and not very loving and not very compassionate. And that people in general are not very clear thinking. And believe in all kinds of things that are uh, delusions, basically. So yeah, no, I did follow my heart. That was been the way. My, in fact, when I met the Dalai Lama's principal teacher, a guy named Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, and we spent time together, he said something very interesting. He saw. He said, when my when I smile, I put my tongue sort of comes out between my teeth, the little tip of it. And he says, that's a sure sign of the way of the heart. In other words, there are four paths in Tibetan Buddhism, the way of the gut, the way of the heart, the way of the mind, and the way of the mo, the transcendence of. Anyway, mine, my way, was the way of the heart, the way of cups. So, yes, it's true that there were many women, but they were, well, I learned from all of them, and they were all chapters in my life. Uh, who taught me things? Um, I, uh, they, most of my great teachers were women. <laughs> you know, I learned a lot from them. In fact, they were more involved, more evolved than the men I knew. The men I knew were all kind of macho, uh, want to make ga- gangster movies and want to make movies about killing people. And I found them kind of boring in their preoccupations. I'm more of a interested in intimacy and love than movies about how you can. Blast people's brains all over the screen.
0: Well, that certainly comes through in the book, and I think probably the the appropriate place to end this part of our conversation is to bring it back to Margot, Margot Kidder, who it sounds like was such a an important piece of the foundation of New Hollywood, and certainly went on to a phenomenal movie star career. But she also, at least as I understand it. T- You know, things got rough for her towards the end of her life, Uh, addiction and other issues. I just want to give you a chance to talk about Margot Kidder, the person you knew. Obviously, you talk about her a lot in the book, but you don't really talk about where things went after you stopped being a couple. You certainly, you you were aware of her to some degree. I'd like just to let you talk a little bit about her and who she was and, yeah, just Her life?
1: Well, I mean, it's a part of the public record that she had, you know, various mental uh, problems that that she had to deal with chemically. But uh, I think she was, uh, but that's really not the point I would make. The the point I would make is that there were these women, Margot, certainly, and See, most of the women I've been involved with, Karen Black, and, uh, you know, now my friend Vivian, and all along the road. Uh, people say, boy, you really like them nutty, don't you? And I would say that anybody who's normal, you know, that seems okay in our society is loony, is nuts, if you are normal in our society, you can bet you're crazy. You're believing in all kinds of delusions and you can't see anything. Most of these people actually had clear vision, could actually see what was going on and it was very upsetting to them. Uh, and in some ways they were like a gifted, clear vessels of emotion and perception and were great teachers for me. But yet, to most people, they seem to be wacko. You see, you know. Whereas to me, most people seem wacko that right? they can get get behind American propaganda, thinking that what they're hearing on CNN uh, is the truth, and what the Russians are saying is lies. And you know, if you're not in the United States, let me tell you, the rest of the world is it doesn't believe the propaganda of the United States. Anyway, what I'm what I'm really saying is. That uh, I learned a lot from these people who, who got disturbed by how uncompassionate, ruthless, and unfair uh, the American society is, was, and it still is. And anybody who's happy and getting along with it, I'll tell you, they're delusional and they're—they uh, don't give a shit about other people, really.
0: Well, that's why we're friends, Paul. That's why you and I are friends. <laughs>
1: No, I mean I think it's disgusting that you have so many people with so flying around in private jets and with you know mega mansions uh, when you have 60 percent of your people in your country living paycheck to paycheck. Well, let me tell you, and there are other countries in this world which are not like that. You know, but people in America think, oh, you know, well, this is the greatest country in the world. This is not the this is a Ruth in the words of John Paul II, Paul the Great, the Pope. You should say, America is the most ruthless country in the entire world, just with the least compassion. And, you know, and, and acting has to do with heart and feeling. And so the, your greatest actors are, uh, tend to be feeling people with great compassion. And they have to get along in this world which extols materialism, fame, you know, blame. What can I say? So for me if you're if you're nutty you're healthy and if you're healthy you're nutty.
0: <laughs> hey folks, Andras here. Thanks for following along with the podcast. I hope it's something you're enjoying and maybe it's even inspiring you to check out some of Paul's films and if you haven't already seen them, some of the films he's talking about. In our next episode, Paul talks about his first feature film, Out of It from 1969.
1: I entered the office a week later. David has Chris Mankiewicz, the United Artists House Intellectual and Head of Development next to him at one end of the desk. I sit in the only empty chair. Mankiewicz says, it's a very good treatment. I say, you can have it for free if I can direct it. Picker says, are you serious? I say, yes. He says, you won't just sell us the story. I say, no. If I sell it to him, what will Ed do? He's my producer. Picker says, Well, then go home and write a low-budget movie, and then maybe we can do it.
0: If you have questions for Paul, or me, please send them to contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com, and we'll do our best to answer them in subsequent episodes. The link to purchase Paul's book, Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men, is in the show notes. And you can still find our posts on Instagram at the World Is Wrong podcast and on Twitter at World Is Wrong Pod. Until next time, I'm your host Andras Jones, reminding you that wherever you are, the world is wrong, and it's probably wrong about you. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store.